0: If there is one lesson of the 20th century, it is that humanitarian catastrophes take place because everybody else says it's not my problem. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by FP's managing editor for news, Lara Jakes, and Hisham Mellum a columnist for Al Arabiya News Channel in Washington and a correspondent for the Lebanese daily Anahar. And calling into the studio from Palo Alto is FP columnist Cory Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Thank you, ER nerds, by the way, for continuing to submit your ideas for podcast episodes. We love hearing from... Well, that's probably an exaggeration. We like hearing from most of you... Some of you are getting a little irritating, but just keep them coming in any case. We're experiencing a slight delay with the shipping of the coveted ER mugs on our end. They have to be insured for millions of dollars because they're so coveted, so be patient with us. Please, Um, you'll get them soon probably, and probably in one piece, although sometimes the handles fall off, but it just adds to the value. It's like a flaw in the diamond. Uh, Anyway, Drop us a line at the ER podcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have an idea or a comment. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, in the United States, we seem to be zeroed in on the impending presidential election. Meanwhile, life goes on elsewhere in the world. Um, there are actually places in the world where they don't talk about Donald Trump at every meal. There are places in the world where they don't have every meal. Uh, And one of the most difficult of these stories, which we touch upon on a regular basis here, but we haven't really done a deep dive on in a while, is Syria and the regions connecting to Syria. Uh, whomever is the next president of the United States is going to have this at their top of their to-do list. Uh, They're going to have to do something. But even before then, much seems to be happening. The United States and Russia are talking about a peace deal. Turkey has gotten involved. The Iranians have become quite active. It seems like there's a shift in the balance of power between the terror groups uh, that there and that while ISIS may be on the run, uh, the inadvertent consequence of the concerted actions of the U.S. and the Russians and the Iranians is the rise again of al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. Um, The consequences in Lebanon, the consequences in Jordan, the consequences for the Kurds, the consequences for the whole region as a result remain up in the air. Um Hisham, you understand this area better than anybody I know, uh with the possible exception of Lara and and Corey, Absolutely. of course. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and 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 I'm just you know what what is what is the sense of the situation there right now? Is is the sense that all this diplomacy is actually producing an improvement? or that things are actually deteriorating and getting more complicated with every passing day?
1: Nobody believes that these diplomatic moves uh, recently are going to end the the war in Syria. There is a sense of despair throughout the region. Sometimes it is articulated well by some observers, but most people feel it. If you remember five years ago almost, the President of the United States said, this is somebody else's war. We're not going to get involved in it. Today, this is everybody's war in the Middle East and in Europe. This is a war that is threatening not only the United state of Syria, it's, it's threatening NATO power, Turkey, even Iraq, definitely Lebanon, definitely Jordan. It's sacking, dragging Israel into the fight. The, Russia is fighting there. You uh, have a million plus refugees in Europe. Uh, Putin is using this to undermine the very existence of the European Union. So we have an international problem, and, and you can reduce America's diplomatic approach now to, uh, to, to Syria, is desperate appeals to the Russian president to lean on his ally, Bashar Assad, to allow humanitarian uh, relief to go to the besieged city of Aleppo. Assad has been using medieval tactics of siege and starvation against the civilians of his own country. And uh, we are now we are reduced to besiege the, uh, Russia. I almost call it Soviet Union. Uh, uh, pleading with them, urging with them, um, we are acting as if we have a tremendous capacity to absorb Russian humiliation in Syria. I've never seen the United States being treated like that by by its adversaries in the region and in Moscow.
0: Corey, we could sit here and we could provide a list of positive steps that the Obama administration has made at home and abroad. Uh, But clearly one of the decisions that they have taken that is going to follow them into the history books is the one to which Hisham just made reference, which is the decision to say this is not our war. Uh, And yet he makes a pretty compelling case that that was a gross miscalculation that had as its consequence a series of events which have made it even more a problem for us and for our allies than it was at the outset. Is that an analysis with which you concur?
2: It is indeed an analysis I concur with. Uh, It seems to me that the fundamental strategic error the Obama administration made is believing that there is no uh, cost to a strategy that takes decades in order to achieve its objective. When in fact, what we are seeing, as Hisham very rightly pointed out, is the explosion in Syria, 11 million refugees, 450,000 people dead. The domestic political consequences in Germany, in France, in Britain, in the United States, of the refugee outflows and the various choices that we're making about the refugee outflows. These are huge consequential costs. And as recently as yesterday, the, chairman of the joint, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marty Dempsey, gave an interview to uh, Foreign Affairs in which he said, we have Middle East strategy about right. And, and that's, it, I'm incredulous that he can actually say that.
0: It's it's easy to understand why you're incredulous. He's wrong. And and I don't think he could be more wrong. The message I'm getting from you and from Hisham is this situation is deteriorating. And so the question that I posed to you, Laura, you lived in this region. Um, You've followed it extremely closely. Uh, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States to make the situation in the Middle East better than it was. Is it?
3: Well, is that true? Was he elected on that mandate or was he he elected on the mandate to get America out of wars? One could make that argument. I see you shrugging. No, no, I'm not
0: shrugging. I'm just uncomfortable in the cheap chairs that they provide here. (laughs) Who's responsible for this?
3: (laughs) I think short of General Dempsey, um, few could say that the current policy in the Mideast and certainly in Syria – has worked or was well-planned or well-thought-off. The off. U.S.
0: policy. Correct. The Russian policy seems to be working just fine for the Russians.
3: We can go there in a second. <laughs> However, you know, just to kind of bring this back to the, okay, then then what? So it's easy for everybody to kind of throw turds on the table and say, this was wrong, this was stupid, we should have done more. I think the smarter way to go is, what is the then what answer? Where do we go? And. If the answer is let's ramp up even a limited military option in Syria, which would probably have to include boots on the ground if we're going to ramp up. We, we see that the, the year plus of airstrikes that the U.S. and its allied coalition partners are are launching on Syria and Iraq have had very limited effect, really. What is the – you know is America ready to put boots on the ground?
0: Well, is that the only alternative? Hisham, is the only alter- – this is the Obama argument – Laura has turned into Barack Obama, spokesperson for the administration.
3: Wow, she has. That has.
0: I don't. I don't even know, you know, what like secret messages Ben Rhodes is sending her. But the, I
3: somewhat thought we wanted a give and flow conversation here. You know, no, alternate we do. sides of debate. I don't know. I didn't think we were all negative Nellies all the time.
0: No, but we're negative it's Nellies. Crazy talk. I love Kansas. Talk. I love Kansas. <laughs> we are negative Such a nattering Negative. <laughs> <didn't wrap> <laughs> We're we're all negative Nellies See, here, but the the,
3: the the yeah I just quoted Spiggy Agnew. Right.
1: That doesn't by, bode well for William, me. It isn't by William Sapphire. Yeah, <laughs> okay.
0: let's set our, the the way we characterize this aside, and 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 sort of I, I'm not looking at this from the perspective of American politics. I'm looking at this from the perspective that Hisham did at the beginning. Which is, you have a situation where nobody who's deeply involved with the situation believes we're closer to a solution, where the deterioration of the situation is calling into question not only the future of Syria, but the future of Iraq, the future of the Kurds, the future of the Turks, Russia's role in the region, Iran's role in the region, the stability uh, factor for neighboring countries from Israel to the Gulf, uh, the refugee issues that exist in Europe, the political consequences of the refugee issues in Europe, the political consequences of the refugee issues in the United States, uh, and as a consequence of all of this, the future of some of our fundamental alliances and the future power of some of our fundamental rivalries. So if all of those things are the case, and certainly dispute them if you can, is it not the case that the decision to stay out, cause problems. And if, in fact, all those things are true, was our only possible response boots on the ground?
3: Look, stipulated everything that you just said, which makes the argument for this is a very complex situation, and there may not be one right or wrong answer. But yeah, give me some answers then. So it's very easy to say this was wrong, this was terrible, I happen to agree, more should have been done and could have been done, and there are many lost opportunities here. However, now what?
0: That is a very – that is the essential question. That is the essential question. And in rapid order, Corey, Hisham, and I will now answer that question. Excellent. Please. I have my
3: pen and paper ready and I will write them down and just give them to my secret channel to Ben Rhodes as soon as we're done. <laughs> <laughs> well played.
1: Yeah. He, he can use that in his next novel. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah. Right. Exactly.
2: So – Um, I agree with David's judgment that the Obama administration has actually skewed the conversation by pretending there's only nothing or the Iraq invasion scenario of 2003. Uh, And, in fact, there is a wider range of choice. My preferred intervention um, template for Syria would be what we did in northern Iraq after the 1991 Iraq War, where you created it, a safe area for refugees. You defended it, not just by the air, not just from the air, but also by the ground. You encouraged humanitarian assistance. You accepted that it was gonna be a long-term undertaking because people could not be safe in other parts of the country. And you grew a leadership that shared our political perspective. And now the, the Kurds of Northern Iraq are Iraq's sectarian success story. It's not impossible to do this, and in fact, we have even done it successfully in the past, working in a partnership with folks in the region. I just think it's fundamentally wrong that there's nothing we could do, And, and I also think it's fundamentally wrong that President Obama that the reason he won the election in 2008 was his position on the Iraq war. Because recall, John McCain was up by four points in September of 2008. It was the financial crisis and John's incapacity to suggest how he would deal with it that won Barack Obama the election, not his position on the
0: Iraq war. Okay, that's one response. Laura, you'll have to acknowledge that there that was specific, right? Yes. A, A An approach, right? And,
3: and let me just ask Corey. Okay, we have the safe area in Kurdistan uh, post-1990. What about the safe area in southern Iraq? where Saddam Hussein went after all the Shia and really ginned up the genocide there there was also a safe area in that area as well there was supposed to be flyovers i think there was maybe one plane a day okay, that okay, flew okay. Up. but we
0: wait didn't a second do you're it. now slipping directly into the ben Rhodes talking points and i have to intervene here um, and so that we can keep this thing moving, given our rough schedule and the fact that we constantly get notes from our ER nerds who are listening to this, that if the podcast goes over thirty thirty five minutes, they collapse on their treadmills. <laughs> um, they're very they have very thin calves. Um, <laughs> and they're cardiovascular mess from drinking box wine all the time, which is you know, sort of – that's the At pro problem. At Bard
2: College dinner parties. At Bard College. You left out the Bard yeah, College dinner yeah, parties. Yeah,
0: really. Um, so in any event, the point is we are now going to go through a list of some things that could be done. It is possible to note that each one of those things either has risk involved with it or might produce an outcome that is not 100 percent successful. This is the argument of the Obama administration, where they say, well, there is some risk or this is not guaranteed to be 100 percent successful. And the case that we're trying to make here is that there were some things that might make the situation somewhat better than we're in today. Fair enough.
1: Hisham. I think we should start from the from the premise that we have to protect the civil, civilian lives of, uh, of, of the Syrians, hence the proposition to create safe zones along the Turkish border or along the uh, Jordanian borders. And these are two allied countries. Um, No-fly zone, that was very important. It can be done. I think you could incapacitate the ability of the regime to use its air force by firing missiles from ships in the Mediterranean or not have to even fly over Syria. This could have been done In 2013, the president did not do it. Since Bashar al-Assad is the magnet that brought ISIS to Syria, that brought all these crazy foreigners to fight in Syria, we can do something that is very limited with Arab forces, UAE forces, Saudi forces, because they are on the record as proposing sending special forces to Syria. If the United States sends special forces to Syria, I can see an expeditionary force, and I talk to military people, 5,000 at the most driving along the Euphrates Valley, liberate Raqqa, and then move against ISIS in in, in Iraq. This will rob Assad from from the major reason that he's using to to slaughter his own people that he's fighting the the Islamist uh, terrorists. But I will give Assad an ultimatum. You throw barrel bombs on civilians, on hospitals, on bakeries, on schools, and your air force will be destroyed. But the problem is that this country cannot do that kind of an ultimate anymore now obviously the Russian involvement makes make things more you know more complicated obviously but the Russian involvement was to some
0: extent a reaction to the u s lack of it
1: exactly precisely so yes. you have non-intervention as a policy non-intervention as a policy and now nobody takes the word of the United States or the word of the American president seriously. the most important thing uh, he did the president did not deliver on his promises and he did not deliver on his ultimatum to what extent is Is
0: the U.S. policy in Syria a victim of the fact that the only clear priority that President Obama had in the Middle East was the Iran deal?
1: Absolutely. From from day one, from the first inauguration speech when he said, "I will extend the hand if you unclench your fist," he was obsessed with this. For him, his eyes were always on the prize. He didn't do it in the first term; he did it in the second term. And he dumped the Arab-Israeli conflict. He didn't care much about uh, uh, to do follow-up in, in in Libya, and he admitted that. So we are responsible in part because of the unraveling well, what in What are Iraq. the
0: consequences? What what happened? As unraveling,
1: a unraveling of Syria, probably un, unraveling in Iraq because we allowed allowed Maliki to rule for eight years, six of them under Obama, and he refused to, to really move against them. So we ended up now with, with, the, with the, even if, look, I mean, even if we liberate Mosul tomorrow, identity politics in Iraq will succeed because we didn't check it from, you know, from the beginning. And, and now Libya's unraveling, Syria's unraveling, Iraq is unraveling. In part, Obama was, was, was elected to do the right thing in the Middle East. He just wanted to get the hell out of Iraq immediately. And and he ignored Syria. I mean, he kept kicking the can down the road. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Presidential
0: campaigns are almost invariably about how the next president's going to be different from the prior president. So, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter was going to be different from the Nixon era, and Reagan was going to be different from Carter, and Clinton was going to be different from Bush, and Bush was going to be different from Clinton, and Obama was going to be different from Bush. That's what we do. But when we say different... We fall into a trap sometimes of saying it's a simple thing. So you know, Bush says, I'm going to be different from Clinton because Clinton messed around in the Oval Office, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to restore dignity and honor and strength. But the one big difference that the American people are always voting for is for leadership which sees the future and makes the right choices, for leadership that can say, I've got a better grip on what's coming up next than the guy prior to me or the woman prior to me. And I, I, you know, hopefully at some point, and, and, and I um, therefore uh, am going to take an action that's in the long-term interests of the American people. And, and, and instead of being reactive. And Obama was like, I'm getting out of Iraq. I'm getting out of he Afghanistan. He overlearned
1: Iraq. He overlearned Iraq. That's the problem. And he has this, this thing about the use of American force. He wants to do the same thing. Send drones and sometimes special forces on essentially safe operations. Sometimes you have to use force, unfortunately, and, and not necessarily massive force like the invasion of Iraq, which was a disaster. But especially when you threaten the use of force and you don't deliver. You know, Those I keep saying every three years, I, 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 that's what I do. I go back and read Machiavelli. And those guys at the White House, especially those brilliant ones who came from from the Hill to the White House, should go back and read Machiavelli if they ever heard of him.
0: You know they don't. You know they don't read Machiavelli. I was at a party, and I'm not. I don't want to say where because I don't want to like give it away. You know, but 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 they were talking about what's going on in the White House, and somebody from the White House was at the party, and you know what's a meeting with Dennis McDonough like? And one of the things that he, this guy said, this person from the White House said was that the people who are in charge of the social media response rule the roost in the white house and that they go into meetings and when people have their annual meetings you know from different agencies and they go in the first question they get asked is how are you doing on social media you know how many hits are you getting on facebook and on twitter and on you know on these other sites as if the response of the twitterverse were the verdict of the world or the determinant of American national interests. And, and this you know, this is a problem. But, but Laura, I want to go back to you. Hisham described some steps that could be taken. Corey described some steps could be taken. You know, we talk about a no-fly zone. There's a debate about it. is that easy? Is that hard? Could you have done it earlier and it would have been easier? Probably yes. Dealing with the refugee crisis in a better and more constructive way, creating safe zones for the refugees, taking a stronger stance against Assad, identifying lower-risk military options that could take the weapons out of Assad's hand, picking somebody, recognizing you won't get a perfect outcome from Syrian opposition. But but some of them are better than other outcomes, right? And that you could have picked somebody and actually bet on them and placed uh, pressure on them. Doing the right thing in Iraq and not running and saying, "Oh, we did, couldn't get a sofa." Actually, trying to get a sofa, which we we, we didn't we, we didn't do there. Doing the right thing. With the Kurds and the Turks, which is standing up to the Turks when they were doing nothing and saying, you're in NATO. Deliver or we're going to reconsider. And then standing up to the Turks and saying, don't go after the Kurds. They were there for us. The Kurds are actually our allies in this kind of thing. We are going to give the Kurds space because in Hisham's formulation where you have the UAE or the Saudis or others coming in – the Kurds would play a vitally important role in that whole thing. Um, Taking a stance with regard to the Russians before this deteriorated. By the way, in Crimea... If you took a stance and you told the Russians that we were not going to tolerate your meddling elsewhere, and we were going to do it, by the way, not by going to war in Crimea, but by getting NATO to instigate a group of kinds of sanctions and putting the squeeze on the Russians and not pretending it wasn't happening, not pretending that the North Koreans weren't cyber-attacking us, not trying to pretend that people didn't do bad things to us, that at some point along the way, you might have made somebody in the Kremlin... Uh, you know, sort of do the calculus and say, maybe I shouldn't do this, right? So uh, we could go on. There's a long list of things. Are you willing to stipulate that at least had some of these things been tried, you might have had oh, an Laura. outcome that was potentially a little better than the outcome we've got now?
3: That was such a couched question. And so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> What's your next question? Victory.
0: No. Okay. That's it. You know, she lived in Baghdad, folks. You know, if she's willing to acknowledge this, you know, I mean.
3: So a couple of thoughts. One, I'm I'm glad Hisham brought this discussion back to where it really should be at all times. And Sorry. The Sorry civilians. But I, if
0: we took it off of that.
3: No, no, no. I mean, it's the fate of the civilians. It's the fate of the people who are there. And to what extent the world has a responsibility or even cares to try to save lives. Um, I'm really glad that you brought that first and center because I think we, especially here in the West, tend to get really wee-weed up over military as the sole answer to all of the world's problems. And um, having said that, I do agree that the red line misstep in 2013 really was what torpedoed everything from here. I mean, all diplomacy and all military action seems to have pivoted off of that one decision. True. So, you know, hard to argue with that. I will bring up what you said about Iran and the administration's sole focus on Iran. I suppose one could make the argument that if the United States got Iran, quote unquote, on its side through the nuclear deal and easing the sanctions, that Iran might have helped in Syria with trying to get Assad, bring Assad to heel. And I mention that because I think that that is probably one factor that the administration thought of. I also think it's really indicative of how the United States... Tends to look at foreign policy issues in very stark terms, in very kind
0: of quid pro quo. The terms. United States looks at issues, the whole country collectively on the internet. Do you mean the Obama administration?
3: Oh, on the internet, so we should be we should be paying attention no, to all that social media stuff. I'm actually not stuff. saying.
0: I'm saying the opposite of that, which is the U.S. doesn't take make U.S. policy. Individuals in the White House make U.S. policy.
3: Hey, I, Congress makes U.S. policy. You know, okay. all sorts
0: of. Uh, okay, so but you're saying that. Typically, the U.S. views things in a certain way.
3: I, I do. I think typically United States foreign policy, I think there is a track record of it being somewhat naive when it comes to especially the East. that the United States has not done a good job of understanding the East, And this goes back decades and decades through many administrations. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to throw that out there. Oh, I can't even read my own handwriting of all of the notes I was taking for Ben Rhodes. Um, <laughs> So I also wonder, you know, if we had gone in, Hisham, and bombed Assad's forces, you know, does that, in fact, spur a war with Russia? Is that what we—maybe we're not on the verge of that now, but it certainly seems to have done it, it deteriorated all you know, relations. Do you think
0: the Russians are going to get no. into a war with the United States? Over Syria? No way. Over anything? No, no. no. We, 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 We'd win it. We we would win it in about two hours. It's it's just not. I mean, first of all, not if we continue to sit on our hands when it well, deals when well, we deal with Russia. That's right, and we strengthen Russia. And look, you know, you look at Syria, and you say, who are the winners? The winners are the Russians and the Iranians, absolutely. Okay, and Assad, who is going to be in office after Obama leaves,
1: exactly.
0: You know, and th- that was not. You know, I, I don't care what your outcomes were. You know, you can't sort of say indefinitely. Well, this could have had a bad outcome. And therefore, our avoiding it was strategic genius and then have a whole bunch of outcomes that were actually worse than the bad outcome that you were talking about. What if the United States went into Syria and was only partially successful? or was unsuccessful, but Russia didn't, Iran didn't, Assad ended up out of power, you had you know, a bunch of other guys grappling around, but ISIS did not get the chance to go and coalesce around this, Iraq did not you know, go in the direction that it had, you didn't end up with a million refugees in Europe, you only ended up with 500,000 refugees in Europe, would that have been a better outcome? I guess for 500,000 people it might have. Yes, well, but, and that's the point, and the other point is this, you know, Aleppo, taken in and of itself, is one of the great catastrophes of modern history.
1: Families— In one of the most important ancient cities in the Middle East, and it's an incredible place. And,
0: and, and this place has been laid waste. Families, communities, neighborhoods, an entire city, a humanitarian catastrophe. I was in the Clinton administration. I remember when we didn't take action in Rwanda. I remember— dealing with a lot of officials who were in that administration, who for years afterwards said, this is my greatest regret. Clinton that said that a couple have, of times. That we could have done something, and we didn't do it. Interestingly, the senior director from the National Security Council, uh, or a senior director, Susan Rice was directly involved in this at the time. Samantha Power, who is our UN ambassador, wrote the definitive book on that, these are people who ought to know better and ought to have done something more, recognizing that if there is one lesson of the 20th century, it is that humanitarian catastrophes take place because everybody else says it's not my problem.
3: Yeah, and don't misunderstand me. This is sort of my point. This is not an all-or-nothing kind of argument that there – could we have done more? Could the world be doing more? Absolutely. But what is that more? Exactly what is that more? What should It's all easy for us to sit here and kind of
0: armchair quarterback. But what is the plan? Well, the, the point is it's it, it may be easy to armchair quarterback. I have to say, having been in a government and you know the people in the government, you know how these things work, uh, there's also a daily conversation about actions. And to get where we are now required a series of thousands of decisions over seven years, which – led to this, and there were plenty of opportunities to make slightly different decisions that would have had slightly different consequences. And just as you say, on Iran, doing a deal with Iran, could it get you someplace with Assad? Might. Yep. But the alternative is that if you're so eager to have a deal that you won't put pressure on them with Assad, then you end up with the opposite outcome. Uh, and the, the, the reality is that if you place the, the achievement of the Iran deal Above the chaos of the region around it, you're making a strategic miscalculation because the risks in the region were from you know Iranian sponsorship of terrorism, and Hezbollah is stronger now than it's been in a long, long time. Other countries, uh, other other terrorist groups rising in the region as a result of destabilization and identity politics. L.A. Hisham talking about it, and so forth. And, and 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 so not only did we not play the Iran negotiation in a way that was to our advantage. We prioritized the Iran negotiation in a way that didn't work in terms of our higher strategic instincts.
1: You know, there is a kind of naive approach to international relations under this administration. You hear John Kerry recently say there's no military solution to the Syrian crisis. But everything Russia and the Iranians and Assad are doing tell you that everything is premised from their own perspective on the use of force. Even when you pursue diplomacy with Iran, you have to pursue it with the support of a strong military. Okay, we, when we're negotiating with Iran on the nuclear deal, how come we didn't challenge them in, in Syria and in Iraq and in Lebanon and in Yemen the way we used to do with the Soviet Union? When we separated the nuclear track, we negotiated with the Soviets, we had summits with the Soviets, we embraced the chairman of the Communist Party, we had telephone conversations and embassies and everything. But we bled them in Nicaragua, we bled them in Afghanistan, we bled them in Angola, we bled them in everywhere. And you and, and we always talked about human rights. You and I knew the the the, the peculiarities of the life of Zakharov and all of these great dissidents. Since when was the last time Barack Obama spoke about human rights in Iran? When was the last time? Or why didn't we challenge them? In 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 uh, in they played the proxy war. We played the proxy war. That, look, they I, didn't pay a price. It, we did not even help the Ukrainian people defend themselves. I don't want to send one American. You know. Uh, soldiers to to Eastern Europe, but why not even help the Ukrainians defend themselves and extract well, a price no, we, from we, Putin? Look,
0: we debated whether we should send them blankets or MREs. Right? I mean, we we I mean, we were having ridiculous discussions that were sufficing in, in the stead of serious discussions. Corey, you've been uncommonly silent. Are you okay? <laughs>
2: I am, well, I, I feel like my entire contribution to the conversation today is saying, yeah, what Hisham said. Yeah, what Hisham said. <laughs> I'll buy you lunch next them. time you're in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with them so strongly. The Obama administration over-optimized to the nuclear threat Iran poses. Not that they should not have cared about the Iranian nuclear weapons program nor tried to constrain it, but they should also have been and also should be concerned about the four other threats Iran poses, their ballistic missile programs, their destabilization of other countries in the region, their human rights violations at home and abroad, and their active support for terrorism. By not doing anything about those, we are not just empowering Russia in the Middle East; we're empowering Iran in the Middle East. The terrible outcome for us and for the people of the region.
0: It's true, and we could go on and on about this, and undoubtedly we will, because that's the point of this podcast. But we won't in this particular. <laughs> um, we won't in this particular podcast. We've been doing this for a year. And I know it happens after we have discussions like this. There's this Twitter discussion. Not the people saying "send me a mug" and "why hasn't Maria sent me a mug" and "where's my mug," which is the main Twitter discussion. But you know, <laughs> is, there's, are we
3: trending? Do we have a hashtag? Have, Where's hasht- my mug?
0: Where's my mug is the hashtag <laughs> exactly. Hey, you know, come on, Maria, send the mug. But but uh, but the. <laughs> The, the discussion is going to be, oh, they're beating up on Obama again and so on and so forth. Let's stipulate. Obama did a lot on climate. Obama had made some progress with you know, China on some issues. Obama made some progress on Cuba. Obama, at least made a half-hearted effort on TPP and came to the right decision on immigration about six years into his administration. Um, Obama oversaw recovery in the United States. He produced health care reform in the United States. Um, he uh, he broke uh, a barrier that existed historically in the United States that was extremely important. He was ethical. His administration was not bound uh, up in scandals. He is a principled man behaving in an earnest way and undoubtedly took every decision that was made here and defended by Lara. um, um no, I'm just kidding. But it took every decision um, be- out of principle and, and a thoughtful analysis of this stuff. Knowing those things and being supportive of those kind of things does not mean we should not evaluate the places where we have had shortcomings in the same kind of critical way that has led us to acknowledge the successes. And that's you know why we have these kind Full of economy. discussions. Um, and in, in any event, we will continue to talk about all of these things. I had a very interesting discussion, which will be the subject of our next podcast, uh, with a very senior former Obama official who explained to me why both the Trump foreign policy and the Clinton foreign policy would be different from Obama's in the same way. Um, and that both of them. What does that
3: even mean?
0: Well, it means that this official, a former very senior Obama official, said that Obama has a predisposition to apologize for the United States around the world. And that both of these, for different reasons, Trump's narcissism, Hillary's actually patriotism, believe in uh, a stronger, more assertive role for the United States that's more consistent with the traditional role. We'll talk about that next time when all of you join us again in this conversation that takes place in our tiny podcast studio high above DuPont Circle. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Laura. By the way, congratulations, Laura, on taking over our entire news operation. It is well-deserved. Everybody is delighted. Uh, You are deeply, deeply respected. Congratulations,
2: Laura. Well deserved. You're
0: deeply, deeply respected. And if this conversation didn't show it, we'll make up for it in the next one. <laughs> um, and, 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 thank you. And, uh, it's a great honor. And, <laughs> and, Don't and, fall for that, Laura. You no, know, it, it'll, it'll happen. And Hisham, thank you. It's thank always you. great when you're here. We hope we get you thank back you. soon. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, And I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.